Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and today my guest is Andres Alvarez of Box Score Geeks and Nerd Numbers. And today we're going to talk about this classic Game 7 from Sunday between the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics. And there's a key play at the end of the game where the Miami Heat were down by two points and Jimmy Butler took a three-point shot. And Dre and I do a deep dive into was this the best shot? What was Jimmy Butler thinking? What was his defender Al Horford thinking? So I'm calling this episode The Ballad of Jimmy Butler and the Shot That Wasn't. Enjoy. Okay, Dre, let's break this down. It's game seven. Marcus Smart is shooting a free throw for Boston. He misses. Jimmy Butler gets the rebound with 23 seconds left. It's dribbling down court. It's basically four on four. Smart and Bam Adebayo are tied up under the basket, the opposite basket. So it's four on four and Smart and Bam Adebayo are out of the picture. Jimmy comes down. Horford's picking him up, backpedaling. Jimmy pulls up for three. There's huge debate about this shot attempt because he misses. What are your thoughts? It was, okay, let's, let's go to poker because we both love poker. I think it was a suboptimal poker play. However, I don't think it was necessarily as bad as people think. So just as a recap, they've got what, they're down by two. If I, and tell me if I'm getting any of the situation wrong. They're, they're down by two and I think there are 18 seconds left by the time he gets down there. So if he makes it, they get the lead, which is huge, but that's a lot of time for the other team to come back. As you noted, it's four on four, but it's really one on four. And the reason Jimmy Butler took the shot is he noticed exactly what you were saying. Al Horford is conflicted between stopping him at the perimeter and keeping him from driving because obviously a layup would be, would be really hurtful. So he makes a split second decision to take a three point shot. Now a frustrating reality for anybody out there is Jimmy Butler, at least historically, not a great three-point shooter. I'm going to say an annoying part of analytics that none of us can really get around. Really, it is hard to gauge how good a player is at shooting as in the game of horse versus shooting in an NBA game. Because, for instance, Kobe Bryant, you and I, man, Ben, I think you and I go back and forth as to who loves bashing his shooting more. The reality is in a game of horse, Kobe would kick the crap out of so many people. If there's nobody guarding Kobe, if he's not running, if you give Kobe the ball almost any place on the court, he's probably going to look like Steph Curry. The difference is when Kobe's covered, and also an annoying reality of Kobe is, Kobe is probably above average at shooting when he's guarded. It's just a suboptimal shot. So like Jimmy Butler, how good he is at that shot when he's guarded? Because he doesn't look guarded. It looks like Al Horford's out of position. It's a hard thing, but like traditionally he's in like the 30s. So let's put him at 50%. So it's poker, right? Assume he thinks he's 50% to make that shot. That's plus 1.5. There's enough time left where they'll be able to come back, which is good too. However, major problem is, right, he doesn't quite have the guys in position. We argue, so that's a funny one, but I'm going to throw this back to you. I, I mentioned the guy's name, and I've already forgotten when we were talking back and forth in the chat. There is a teammate of Jimmy Butler's, and I argue he gets the bad read on the rebound. And if he were a Dennis Rodman, it, I think... It, uh, was, it was Oladipo. Oladipo and then yeah. Lowry. So Oladipo, Oladipo is sprint. Like I said, it is one on four when Jimmy Butler pulls up for the shot. But by the time the shot is bounced, the Heat and Celtics, the Heat players have all caught up. And Oladipo is sprinting at the basket. And the problem is he overshoots it because the ball bounces and comes back. And he shoots as if it was going to bounce off to the right. 
And so if he'd had a good read and stopped, the ball basically falls right in his hands. And I've read this before, like players such as Dennis Rodman, what made them such good rebounders was like two parts was ability to read and ability to position, right? Because Dennis Rodman was smaller, at least height wise than other players, but he could get his body in the right spot. And as soon as you've got the, your body in the right spot and over the ball's going at is such a huge advantage. So there's a frustrating reality where I think Oladipo is a little better. That play could have been a little different, but one of the other back and part back and forth things you and I had discussed before this is just like these split second decisions. Jimmy Butler played 48 minutes that game. That's ridiculous. And it is so easy to armchair quarterback it. And the fact that you, an, ex an excellent head coach, an analytics head, you were splitting it down frame by frame and looking at it in slow-mo multiple times and even then didn't have a definitive answer, I think gives us all the answer we have on like how hard it is to say if it was good or bad. Right. And to the too long didn't read reaction for me is it wasn't the best shot, but it wasn't a bad shot. Basically, we're just, it's a difference in a few percentage points and it's however we want to, whatever number we want to start with in terms of how often does Butler make that shot? And then it's just variations of that percentage. So the couple, you said a couple of things I want to react to. It's interesting. I think this moment, it's a little bit like when the Patriots played the Seahawks in the Super Bowl a few years ago. And the Seahawks, had, they were at like second and five or second and three maybe. And time was running out and they threw the ball and it was intercepted and they could have run the ball. And, and people say, no, they should have run the ball. But actually any, any football an analyst worth his or her salt knows that they made the optimal play. Because if you throw the ball and it's incomplete, then you still get time to run it. And, but if you ran the ball, then you wouldn't have any time left. So it's like that. This is a similar moment, I think. So you threw out the number 50%. Is Jimmy, if Jimmy takes that shot with a, def a backpedaling defender who's not really going to contest it, what's the percent chance that he makes that shot? I have no idea. So it just, I think that's the number you, you have to start from. And of course, no one knows that number because it's just theoretical. That's the number you have to start from. And then you just work from there. So if I start from that number, then I'm going to say Jimmy's 35% to make that shot. Cause I think he's a 25% three-point shooter. This he season. upped himself to 34% in the playoffs. And I think historically he's actually been better. That's one of the things is three-point shooting is highly variable at his best with Chicago in 2013, when he was taking one, three a game. So you could pro that, that I'll give you this. That's probably a corner three that's being generated by Derek Rose or somebody. Yeah, 38% isn't a bad number because what I'm guessing with 1.33s a game is exactly what you're saying. It's when Jimmy Butler is wide open and they toss him the ball and he takes a shot with the exact same scenario, a big defender rushing at him at right. the last second. So 38% so, isn't a bad guess. Right. So the playoff stats is such a small sample size. Regular season is a more accurate number, but to your point, a bunch of those shots when we bail out shots and a shot clock shots, et cetera. So if Jim, if Jimmy shot 25% or 26% during the regular season, but some bunch of those are bailout shots, let's say I'm going to go with the number 35% that, you know, it's not a wide open three, but it's a backpedaling defender who's not going to strongly contest. I'd say 35%. Then you have to factor in fatigue. Part of this may be decision fatigue, as you alluded to. 
but Jimmy played all 48 minutes. So now we have to knock down the percentage, whatever amount. So let's say it's 35% if he's fresh. Now it, let's say it's, I don't know, 25% if he's not fresh. So basically a one in four chance to go up. Now you have to factor in Boston gets the ball back with plenty of time. Now they can go ahead or they can get fouled, hit one free throw, goes to overtime, blah, blah, blah. The, here's why he should have taken it. Miami was dead on their feet. They had no business even being in that game. Max Struess hits a ridiculous three 20 seconds earlier to bring them within two. And before that, Jalen Brown forced a drive instead of running clock. If they just run clock, they would have been able to run it out and start shooting free throws. So Miami, and Miami was down double digits the whole game. So Miami had no business even being in that game. Jimmy's the only player that's generating any offense, except Lowry hit a couple nice shots. And Butler's exhausted. So I don't have a problem with the shot. The thing, the reason why I wished he'd um, taken the ball to the basket is because, remember, Adebayo, Bam Adebayo and Marcus Smart are tied up under the opposite basket. And Smart is actually out of bounds, out of the out of bounds on the baseline. And Adebayo's right under the basket. If Jimmy drives in, I think there's a good chance Adebayo, you can't see it in the TV shot because it's only half the court, but there's a good chance I think Adebayo's sprinting down. And once Jimmy takes the ball to the basket and goes up against Horford and either gets fouled, makes the basket, or if he misses, Adebayo's going to come flying in with nobody blocking him out to rebound the ball. So if I'm coaching, the optimal play that I want my player to execute is to take the ball to the basket. Horford is backpedaling because he wants Jimmy to shoot. He knows Jimmy's more dangerous going to the basket. So that's why Horford's backpedaling. So the optimal play from Horford's perspective was Jimmy pulling up and shooting a three, which he did and he missed, but it's not a bad shot. Yeah, it wasn't a horrible one. And by the way, this is a, I haven't been able to track this down, at least on YouTube. But there is a fantastic interview with Magic Johnson. I actually wrote an article for this at the Wages of Wins, uh, which I'll have to track down at one of these points, which is about the baby hook Magic Johnson did against the Boston Celtics to win mm -hmm. a game. And the reality of that play is it was set up for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to take the shot. And if you look at the play, I cannot defend Magic Johnson's decision. And full teamed. Kevin McHale is right there. He's basically triple teamed. And by the way, he's not just triple teamed by nobody's. He's triple teamed by McHale, Parrish, and Bird. These are giants. I don't know if he can see, even if he's decent with a baby hook. It's not like a Kareem baby hook from right up next to the basket. He's mid-range. He's taking what is known as a shit shot. One of uh, friends of the show, Ty Willinghans, named these a while ago. Worst shot in basketball, mid-range jumpers called a shit shot. And if you're jumping and doing a hook, from mid-range it's even worse and if you watch the play kareem is wide open now you can make some defenses okay he's triple team so if he misses kareem's right there you can get the rebound yada i heard an interview once i think 90 percent certain i heard a talking head where magic goes the play was for me to pass to kareem but i thought to myself how many times do i have the opportunity to beat the celtics with a shot and this is magic johnson this was when he retired, and by the way, thanks to what Stockton has turned into, I'm fine basically giving the crown back to Magic, the greatest passer in basketball history. When Magic Johnson retired early, mind you, he was the greatest passer in basketball history. The greatest passer in basketball history with the greatest when he retired as well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and still has the crown. Probably lose it to, to LeBron soon, but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the greatest offensive player in basketball history. 
Magic Johnson had that situation. Not only that, it was called for by one of the greatest coaches in basketball history. So the greatest coach to the greatest passer to the greatest defender in basketball history said, get Kareem the ball next to the hoop to score. And Magic Johnson said, I'm in the playoffs. I want this to be my shot. So Jimmy Butler knows that shot goes in. That's the game winner. He's he is a legend hero. in Miami. And this is Miami that don't forget, this is the land of LeBron James, of Dwayne Wade, some major names in the playoffs. And Jimmy Butler has a chance at history. And I, I cannot take away from that. I get so incensed at people like us, ironically. People like us, but worse bet. So the people <laughs> that have the team spirit, but don't use the right stats for it, I, it's like the worst of all worlds. <laughs> this is a job to Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler knows that if he is remembered as a hero for playoffs in Miami, his ticket is set for life, right? Car dealerships, endorsements, forever there. It's a job. And it could have been a huge shot. So it's like every NBA player, even the most, even the biggest passer of all time has that little voice in their head. That's you make this shot, you're a hero forever. And you can't, mm -hmm. that, that's the sport. Everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows it. Anyway. So a couple of years ago, Toronto beats Philadelphia in game seven. Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons. Kawhi hits the shot that bounces four times and drops in. Do you know why the game was tied? Why was the game tied? Let's hear it. Jimmy scored with four seconds left. It's the exact same play, actually, because it was a it was close. It was off a free throw. Jim, it's a free throw miss. Jimmy gets the rebound, goes full court. And instead of pulling up, he drives in and scores and ties it. Oh. And then Kawhi hits that incredible shot. This all happens way too fast to think of any of this stuff consciously, but maybe that was also in the back of his mind of, we don't want the tie. We just want to, we want the win. Yeah. There's so much there. And like I said, my other big thing is it's really hard to judge players on being rational in the moment. It's, it has always bugged me about the state of basketball analytics that we all love. We all love behavioral psychology. We all love Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, thinking fast and slow, which is all about how human beings are irrational to small little nudges. That was a, another uh, Richard Thaler, another big name in the field, wrote a book called Nudge. See, these tiny things can cause people to make vastly different decisions, even if you have a supercomputer that would give you the answer of this is a 0.64 versus a 0.36. And it, it is always amusing to me when you have people like us watch the game and really go, it is really hard to be really rational when you are tired. It's game seven, it's 48 minutes. I'm definitely giving some leeway there. And then the, the last shot that I'll give, and, and you got a chance to see this is, crunch the numbers, Jimmy Butler was the best player in, in the series, not even close. So, so it's just one of those, like, it would be really hard. It's really ticks me off in general in sports where the last plays, even with Michael Jordan get remembered so well when it's like the however many minutes, right? It was seven games. So seven times 50, like three, the 350 minutes, like almost six hours of basketball. There were six hours of like continuous basketball. If you cut out all the timeouts in six hours of basketball, Jimmy Butler made a slightly suboptimal decision in a five second chunk, why would we judge? Them? Right. It's not like he made an irrational decision. You're a chess player. It's like he just chose, he made a move that was a good move that maybe was a few percentage points less good than the absolute optimal move. That And that happens all the time in chess, actually. Chess has time controls. And so the best players, if you sit them down on a board and give them 30 minutes to think, will make a really good move. And there have been many times where time's running out and a player's got 10 seconds to make a move 
and they make it in time and they make the wrong move. And when you listen to the commentators, oh, they're a time couple. Yeah, Jim, it, it is one of the hardest things that I've got to imagine a great I'm going to give credit to Ben, Ben Guest, who always checks his watch during these situations. Late game scenarios, it's got to be really hard for your lizard brain to really ascertain how long, because 23 seconds is a long time. But if your adrenaline's pumping and you're running and the crowd's cheering and you don't stop to check the clock, suddenly you're rushing and you realize, oh, I took, this is not even the first time we have seen a star player take a shot way too soon because they were just, you know, too jazzed. And it's not, he didn't shoot too soon because they're down. You want to get the shot up as quickly as possible, but it's, do you want to drive in from Jimmy's perspective? Do you want to drive in against a 6'10 mobile defender? And there's a lot of ways that Horford can stop that. Now, the flip side is you're at home. You're probably going to get the whistle. And by the mistake actually is by shooting early, then no one's in position to crash for the offensive rebound, which is exactly what we saw. And it was Horford who ended up getting the rebound. But he could have done like almost a Wayne Gretzky-ish thing where he runs under the basket and then pops back out and resets. Uh, and for those that don't know, Wayne Gretzky, one of the greatest hockey players of all time, one of the things that would make him so potent and dangerous is on offense, he would skate behind the opposing team's net and recenter himself on offense, then come out and was just super dangerous. Because that often you would think a player streaks at the net and what they're going to want to do is shoot because they don't want to lose the puck. Wayne Gretzky was so good at ball, at puck handling, that he would go behind the net and go, I can wait for my teammates, I can come out. The goalie can't see me, so this is really rough. Jimmy Butler could have done that. I don't really have, yeah, I don't have a flaw with it. And that game's rough on so many regards. And this was something we were talking about back and forth before this, Ben, namely just how thin the margins are. Because I'm looking at the play-by-play -play for what you're just saying, the, the Jimmy Butler, the last chance at destiny and heroics. To be fair, they would have gone to overtime and anything can happen in overtime. But the reason he was able to drive- You're talking about the, the Philly- um, The Philly, Toronto, the Philly, Toronto yeah, game. game seven. So Jimmy Butler- makes a two-point layup from one foot with four seconds to go before Kawhi Leonard makes one of the most bullshit shots that goes in <laughs> of all time. But the reason he takes that shot instead of a three, Kawhi missed a free throw. Mm -hmm. So Kawhi got to the line with the team up one. If he makes both free throws, they're down by three, and Jimmy Butler might have repeated the exact same mistake. So it's funny. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go full circle, like conspiracy theory brain, or at least like outside the box. Jimmy Butler had in his mind programmed this exact scenario because of what happened with Kawhi and took the three kind of out of feet because of what happened last time. And the only reason it happened last right. time was these thin margins. And maybe also he knows, okay, if I miss, we're going to foul. And maybe the odds are high that whoever we foul misses one of their free throws. Now, Smart hits both of his free throws after missing about four three-pointers in the minutes earlier. Let's give a couple shout outs. One is to, to the sports writer, Tim Bontemps. He's the only person, and you mentioned this in your great post, he's the only person who has a vote, the only sports writer who votes on the Eastern Conference Larry Bird player, MVP, to vote for Jimmy Butler, who well-deserved to be the, the MVP of the Eastern Conference playoffs. And just to give a quick breakdown that people can read this, nerdnumbers.substack.com is where this will go up. But I did two metrics. One metric is standard wins produced. Just look at the, the full body of box score work, which in a seven-game series seems very fair. A seven-game close playoff series, just saying who had the best box score stats when judged correctly. Jimmy Butler put up 1.7 wins produced. So again, you need four, four games to win. 
He almost put up half of a winning series on his own. That's re- remarkable. And second place in total wins produced would be Jason Tatum. So the, 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 the best player on the winning team won the award, which is an implicit criteria. I don't like it. But 1.7 versus 1.2, that is huge. And the other metric I gave was game ball, namely who was the best player in a game-winning game. Jimmy Butler had two. Jason Tatum had one. My kind of opinion was Jimmy Butler was the difference maker in in two games in his series, which is ridiculous. Two out of three, they won three games, and the highest wins producer. So I thought he was the best. But I don't have a complaint with Jason Tatum beyond our classic. For a lot of individual awards in this sport, including brand new ones, so Larry Bird and Magic Johnson awards are brand new, them being the conference finals MVPs, they do seem to be sticking with. You need to be on a winning team to win this individual award, which is iffy to me. <laughs> because the, the single greatest game I've ever seen was LeBron James game one, 2018 against the Warriors, which they lost. And one of the great series was LeBron in 2015, the first time they played the Warriors when they went six games and LeBron, I think, averaged 45 points and he was the Cavs were without Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. They he almost beat the Golden State Warriors in their prime by himself. But I also want to give an, another shout out, Dre, and that's to the writer, Paul Nepper, who I interviewed for this podcast and wrote a great book called The Knicks of the 90s. And to your point about Kawhi Leonard having missed that free throw, right? So if it goes to overtime, Philadelphia wins, Kawhi Leonard's legacy is totally different. And in the Knicks of the 90s, Paul writes about game six and game seven of the finals, the Knicks and the Rockets, where game seven, John starts. Oh, yeah. I think it was 17 shots. I think it was like two for 19. Just kept missing. Maybe it was two for 17. Anyway, I think just he missed. went like one for 11 from three, which is. Yeah, just rough. missed everything. And it was a six point game. Um, they ended up losing by six. But the game before, which they lost by two, John Starks scored, I think it was 15 points by himself in the fourth quarter and had the ball off a pick and roll for a game-winning three-pointer. So he's on fire, scored 15 points in the quarter, pulls up at the buzzer for a game-winning three, and I mean, his form is perfect. And it was off a pick and roll with Patrick Ewing. Hakeem jumps out and gets a fingertip on the ball. And the ball essentially blocks it. So they go to game seven. Starks plays terribly. If Starks hits that shot, if Hakeem's a half a second slower or Starks is a half a second faster, and Starks hits that shot, that's 18 points in the fourth quarter of the New York Knicks championship winning game. He never plays that game seven. His legacy is totally different. So the point I'm making is judging players' entire careers and legacies on these split-second moments is total bullshit. When Dean Smith won his first championship with Michael Jordan as a freshman hitting the game winner, he turns to his assistant coach at the time, Roy Williams, and Smith had made a bunch of Final Fours and never won. And he said, Roy, I'm no better coach now than I was 40 minutes ago in game time, meaning before this game started. Because it's these little play, it's one play here and there that decides the whole game. And it's not fair to create someone's whole legacy 
around moments that are really just variations of luck. The, the good news is that's fun. And we're, we're going to be doing another podcast. I, I won't plug it too much because we want to get it uh, all prepped and ready to go. But a lot of it will be doing with storytelling. And mm -hmm. it is really tempting to graft the narrative. This is the last point I wanted to make. And then I, I'm good beyond you know saying what I said. Jimmy Butler deserved, deserved the award. And just uh, for clarification, we were saying this pre-show, I would have given my vote out west to Kavon Looney. It, it's not fair. Kavon Looney and Jordan Poole, th those two players have been ridiculous for the Warriors. Watch out for them in the finals. That, that's my two cents here. But it is really tempting to graft a narrative onto the playoffs. And what was amusing, yes, exactly. I saw some people saying, how could anybody think that the Warriors were going to lose to the Mavericks? And my head just exploded because I went, we literally just, the Phoenix Suns go up two games to zero. The Phoenix Suns, the best team in the regular season, clearly Chris Paul was off, clearly. And the injury to the best player on the Phoenix Suns was the difference between the Golden State Warriors playing the Mavericks and the Golden State Warriors playing the Phoenix Suns. That, that's it. And so you're like, how could we think that Golden State stood a chance against Gold, or how could we think Dallas stood a chance against Golden State? It's like, all it takes is Steph Curry or Draymond Green or Klay Thompson tweaking it or, or Kevon Mooney, we just said was amazing. Those four players have been injury prone just in, in part because of how many minutes they play, et cetera, the last. So it's like, how could we think that would happen? Lo and behold, by the it's an uncomfortable reality, and there is a lot of bad blood in the series, Memphis versus Golden State. Memphis lost their best player mid-series. And I know there's this, we I can't explain it, by the way, this season, Ben. John Moran is one of the best players on the Grizzlies. He's a great player. He won most improved. I have no, unlike many people, it was really annoying. I was like looking over the numbers. I was like, yeah, he's perfectly fine for most improved. There's so many years the player that wins most improved is bullshit. And people complain. And this year, people are complaining about John Morant winning most improved. I was like, yeah, it makes complete sense. One of the best players on the Grizzlies gets injured mid-series. Now, again, there's this weird narrative throughout the year that whenever John Morant sits, the team does better. Now, Memphis was a really good team this year, so I can't explain that either. Like, I, the numbers don't explain. I'm just like, well, no Andre, you can't explain it. I can explain it using wages of win. Okay, let's, let's using their numbers. Tyus Jones, John Morant's backup, has a higher WP48 than John Morant. All right, but, okay, actually, that's a very simple explanation. All right, so mm. never mind. I, I, I retract my comment. But, but that being said, it's John Morant goes down, and it's entirely, let's, let's take a look at that really quick. It's entirely possible that swings the series, and that happened twice in this playoffs. So for anybody to be like set in stone, it's so obvious when it's like one of the biggest factors in playoffs is injury. And mm. I am amazed how people literally forget it, not just year to year, not just five, I think you and I were talking back and forth and you brought up the 2016 Warriors, the, the greatest team of all time, had like a Chernobyl event where three of their players get injured, suspended, whatever, and they, they lose. That's one of the biggest upsets of not just, also just margin. The difference between the Cavaliers' strength and the Warriors' strength is one of the biggest, like that would have been almost as bad as the Rockets with a losing record beating, I think, the Celtics, I want to say, for, for a title. Was, yeah, that, yeah, that would be almost as bad. 81. Yeah, mm. so it's, people aren't even forgetting five years ago. I'm like, people are forgetting two games ago, and it's, it's <laughs> maddening. Well, Jimmy Butler played a hell of a game. And the other thing is, to your post, nerdnumbers.substack.com, Jimmy missed the second half of game three and with knee soreness and then was a shell of himself in games four and five. So to be four and away, the leading wins producer, having not played half a game and then play, playing two games at a much 
reduced level of productivity is that much more impressive. And you and I, I think we're saying, we, I, I have no idea. That's my answer for the finals. I don't know. But we really? both agree, Robert, will, yes, yes. I'm, I'm sticking with, I don't know, Ben, I'm sorry. Okay. We both agree Robert Williams is one of the best players in the NBA. Like I end my post this week joking about why I'll never get any of the awards. And this year he wouldn't have got my first place vote. That goes to Jokic far and away. Robert Williams would have got one of my votes if I was an MVP voter. I'm curious, would, are you the same in what place? If you had a choice this year, Robert well, Williams the, for, the for MVP regular season. Regular season. This is tough for me, Drake, because I'm so by in that Rob Williams is my favorite player in the NBA right now. I love the way he plays. It's Rob Williams and Brandon Clark, two WP48 All-Stars. I love the way he plays. Would he have gotten my vote? You mean for first place or in so, top so, five or the top easy one. So for top wins produced for the year, mm -hmm. Nikola Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Paul, Robert Williams. Those are the, the top five by just aggregate wins produced. Brian Foster and I on the Box for Geek show basically right. said that's a perfectly fine metric. So the question is, would you put Robert Williams fifth or would you put him higher if you were if you had a that's the question is can i bump chris paul can i bump Giannis? can i could i so no, so there our metric of choice right we're all we're all fans and acolytes of the work of dave barry and you've been doing this work for a long time as well so the metric is called wins produced per 48 minutes and peer-reviewed publishing journals published in in a fantastic book called wages of wins so you can break that down in a couple of different ways. One is how many wins did you produce? And the other is what is your average wins produced per 48? So wins produced per, four, per 48 minutes, Rob Williams has the highest average this season of anybody. And, and for respect, just to give the perspective on that, sorry, yeah. cut you, but what I'll just say this way, kind of an easier way to think of it is like, he's like worth four players. An average yes. player would have a wins per 48 of 100. He basically, I'm, I'm rounding it to 400 bet. He has a wins per 48 of 400. If we're putting this yeah. like baseball nomenclature. So, so he so is to put that, four times as good as an average NBA player. To put that himself. in perspective, an average NBA player is 100 WP48. A superstar is 200. A super duper star is 300. <laughs> and Rob Williams put up 400 this year, which is, that comes around about once every five seasons. So say in 20 years, maybe four players have put up an average like that. But he only played 29 minutes. So that's really an indictment potentially of the Celtics. Although you've mentioned before that maybe there's um, a medical issue that's limiting his playing time. In the playoffs, I don't buy it for regular season. Though, but man. Yeah, I'd give him a vote. He, he would definitely get one of my five votes. I don't know if he'd get my first place vote. I probably got it. Yeah, I forgot. I'm leaving. <laughs> We're early on hey, recording too, Ben. You don't want <laughs> just, just to uh, Just to close the loop. So for Memphis, Tyus Jones, backup point guard, his WP48 is 232, which is superstar level. John Morant is 182. So Tyus Jones is actually a more productive player than John Morant. And Memphis, their least productive player is Jaron Jackson Jr., who's a negative productivity player. He actually cost them three wins in the regular season. And then their third least productive player is Dylan Brooks, who cost them one win. So if they had just sat Dylan Brooks and sat Jaron Jackson Jr., they would have a clear title. Yeah, agreed. All right. Anything else you want to end on before? Yeah, you planted it. So let's pay it off. You alluded to another podcast we're doing. So why don't we just go ahead and announce that now? We're doing a huh? we're doing a Ted Lasso episode by episode rewatch. So 
Dre and I are slow and steadily, slowly and steadily working our way through the episodes. We're going to try to time the episodes so that the last one will come out the week before season three starts. We're estimating season three probably in August of 2022. Oh, oh you're behind, my friend. You're behind. Uh -uh. You're doing Talk a to Ted me. Lasso podcast and you are not keeping up on the news. You want the Tell good, me. bad news? It's good yeah. news for us. Bad news for Ted Lasso fans. Oh, Danny Rojas or Chris, what's his uh, real name? Sorry. But the actor who plays Danny Rojas came out and basically said season three is a little delayed. They're hoping it'll be out by the end of 2022, but it's delayed at least till end of 2022. So Ben, get a little bit of respite, get a little extra time. More time for us to create great Ted Lasso content. Well, I, I always had a joke. I've, I've talked about this in university settings. I, I know you as a professor, I hate this. It'd be like, you'd have an assignment due. A friend of mine pointed us out about school. Like you'd have an assignment due and you put it off to the last day and you're like, oh damn. And then the, that class, the, the class before the professor comes out, I'm going to give you guys all an extension. You're like, awesome. You know, I got a whole week to work on it. Fast forward a week, day before the extensions due. Oh damn. So we'll see that, if we. That, the, yeah, but I'm sure we will. But that makes me think of, do you remember the pilot episode of The Simpsons where Bart has an assignment due and he, he hasn't done it? And, and he's praying, he's, please, God, make something happen where we don't have to go to school tomorrow. And Mar and Lisa's like, prayer, the last refuge of a scoundrel. And then it I starts snowing. It too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, of and course, it's a big old squad. I'm, I'm impressed I still remember it. All right. Let's uh, right, sir. the other one. Okay. Ballad of Jimmy Butler and the shot that wasn't. Thank you, Dre. That's a great title. That's, that's what you're naming this, right? Yes, sir. Awesome. That was my conversation with Andres Alvarez. You can read Dre's fantastic basketball newsletter at nerdnumbers.substack.com. That's nerdnumbers.substack.com. And you can find me at benbo.substack.com. Benbo is my family nickname, B-E-N-B-O.substack.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please recommend the podcast to others. Again, you can sign up for the newsletter and podcast at benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.